0: Chapter Three of the Story of a Modern Woman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Reichert. The Story of a Modern Woman by Ella Hepworth Dixon. Chapter Three A Young Girl. Looking back across the vague, misty years, the egotism, the ferocious egotism of the young girl appears well-nigh incredible. At eighteen, she, with her fluffy hair and her white shoulders, is the most important thing in her little world. There is the day she first discovers she has a throat with fine lines, the secret delight with which she hears an artist tell her that the movements of her body are graceful. Does black or blue or white become her best? It is never too late, and she is never too tired, when she comes back from a ball, to light all the candles again in her bedroom, and examine herself critically, anxiously in the glass. There is a little pink spot of excitement on each cheek. Her hair is ruffled. She looks pretty. She has been happy to-night. Someone, no matter who, has told her she looks charming. There is the desire of the young girl to coquette, to play with, TO TORTURE WHEN SHE FIRST LEARNS THE ALL-POWERFUL INFLUENCE WHICH SHE POSSESSES BY THE PRIMITIVE FACT OF HER SEX. WITH ALL THE ARROGANCE WHICH BELONGS TO PERSONAL PURITY, SHE STANDS ON HER LITTLE PEDESTAL AND LOOKS DOWN ON MANKIND WITH A SOMEWHAT CONDESCENDING SMILE. SHE IS, AND SHE FEELS IT INSTINCTIVELY, A THING APART, A KIND OF FORCED PLANT, A PRODUCT OF CIVILIZATION. At present the ballroom, with its artificial atmosphere, its fleeting devotions, its graceful mockery of real life, is the scene of her little triumphs. The eyes of all men, young and old alike, follow the girl approvingly, wistfully, as she ascends the staircase, her full heart beating against her slim satin bodice, the clear peach-like cheeks pink with excitement her swimming eyes raised invitingly to some favourite partner or dropped as she passes a man she wishes to avoid at the door her slender white arms and shoulders disappear in a circle of black coats the programme is scrawled all over she notes exultantly that one or two men are scowling at each other and that she has no dance to give someone who has joined the group too late It is the woman's first taste of power there is too the joie de vivre the delight of the young animal at play the imperious will to live of a being in perfect health the girl must dance till her feet ache horribly the room swings round and the pink dawn comes creeping in behind the drawn blinds but still she must go on till that music stops the swaying, voluptuous, heart-rending music, which draws her feet round and round, the violins with their nevrant tones, the human, dolorous strains of the cornets, the brilliant, metallic, artificial sounds of the piano, all act powerfully on the young girl's nervous system. Then come the stifling, crowded supper-room, with its indigestible food and sweet champagne— the young men who move nearer and look at her with strange eyes after they have eaten and drunk it is all new and intoxicating and a little frightening but it is life or the nearest approach to it that a young girl gently nurtured and carefully looked after can possibly know admiration at this period is the very breath of her nostrils no matter from whom no matter when or where A smile seen like a flash on a face in a passing hansom; the ill-bred pertinacity of a raised lorgnette at a theatre, the dubious gaze of men about town leaning against ballroom doors. Nothing offends her. It is simply incense burnt at the feet of her youth. But at last, out of the vague crowd of black coats and wistful eyes, the first lover emerges— It is a little difficult to recall his face after all these years. Looking back dispassionately, he seems to have been very like all the others, only that he made her suffer, while the others perhaps suffered a little for her sake. There were the horrible half hours of torture when she waited in some crowded party for his sleek head and his somewhat foolish smile to appear in the doorway, the blank, empty days when there was no letter the shamefully sweet, the incredible surrender to their first tentative embrace, a surrender which tortured her night and day, and then the joy, the supreme joy, of knowing, for certain, that he cared. It is all a little remote now, but the beautiful secret was hugged like a very treasure. He was young, he was poor, there were difficulties of every sort to contend with, and finally there was a parting one warm windy night in november it was a sunday about seven o'clock and through the window which was ajar in the drawing-room where they stood came the sound of a tolling bell it was only a neighbouring church summoning pious folk to evening service but it sounded like a knell it was a well-nigh hopeless affair and all that they could do was to promise to write to each other For some weeks the girl watched, in the column of the shipping intelligence, the eastward progress of a peninsular and oriental steamer on its way to Australia. And after that, on the mornings when the mail came in, she would stand with her heart in her mouth and her hand on the knob of the dining-room door, afraid to go in and find that no foreign envelope lay beside her plate. For some months, to be sure, the letters nearly always lay there, but gradually they got rarer and rarer, and one day she told herself, finally, that she need not expect any more. Torture is not made more bearable by being slowly applied. During the months in which those letters from Australia grew rarer, the girl understood for the first time the helplessness, the intolerable burden which society has laid on her sex. All things must be endured with a polite smile. Had she been a boy, she was aware that she might have made an effort to break the maddening silence, have stifled her sorrow with dissipation, with travel or hard work. As it was, the trivial round of civilized feminine existence made her in those days almost an automaton. One looks back with wonder at the courage of the girl, to find a smile with which to face her father at the dinner-table to take a sisterly interest in Jim's exploits at school, to show due surprise each time her brother announced the arrival of a new batch of rabbits, and a partisan's joy in the licking, which Smith Minor had administered to Jones major. These were the immediate duties which lay before her. Not feeling strong just now, the girl gave up going to Balls. They reminded her too much of that episode which she wished to forget— and now the prospect that opened out before her was a vista of years full of scientific soirees, where one walked down long, sparsely peopled rooms, and looked through microscopes at things which wriggled and squirmed. Sometimes the girl felt strangely like one of those much-observed basiliae. The daughter of a scientist, she knew well enough that her little troubles had about as much importance as theirs in relation to the vast universe." yet there she was, fixed down under her little glass case, while the world kept a coldly observant eye on her. Ah, the torture of the young! The young who are always unhappy, and whose little lives are continually coming to a full stop, with chapters that cease bluntly, brutally, without reason and without explanation. That she was thrown aside, dropped overboard, as it were, in the terrific battle for existence, mattered nothing to the young girl. Having no self-pity, she never questioned the justice of the blow that had been dealt her. Afterwards, in the years to come, she might wonder why she should have been made to suffer so. But not then. One's first sorrow is a very precious thing. In those far-off days she would gladly have sacrificed everything, even life itself, for the young man who forgot to write, and whose face, with its rather foolish smile, it is so difficult to recall exactly as it was about this time when she began to work at the central london school of art father and daughter became great friends on the days when he went to lecture at the london university she would either walk with him or go to fetch him on those afternoons when he was coming straight home to tea instead of making his way to the Athenaeum club with her chin in the air looking straight before her she stepped along in the half-dark, with a royal scorn for the well-dressed loafers who find their pleasure in accosting ladies in the street. She was twenty-one, and a woman now. It behoved her to be able to take care of herself. And after all, they were perhaps more easily disposed of than some of the men who took her in to dinner, men who had tired eyes and a dubious smile, and who were fond of starting doubtful topics with a sidelong, tentative glance she works now regularly with her father acting as his amanuensis when his eyes are tired or verifying facts in the library jimmy the little brother has grown into a boy with charming insinuating manners who is curiously un-british in his demonstrativeness his sister he says is the most charming of girls he announces that he is always going to live with her nothing shall separate them his whole life he declares with his arms round her neck is to be devoted to his dearest Mary. How well she remembered the last time she and her father had gone out together! She could recollect driving in a hansom, and their talk on the way to the foreign office. His last book but one had but lately appeared, and was now being scratched and bespluttered assiduously by clerical pens." while it was received with rapture by the large class which like their advanced thinking done for them and turned out in fat print with ample margins once in every third year all the way up the crowded staircase there is a great display of teeth of tiaras, of stars and orders of shining bald heads the wife of the foreign secretary is delighted to see the professor though no one in that eminently aristocratic gathering insists on anything and most people are content to exchange two fingers two words and two smiles one at greeting and one at passing on his excellency the german ambassador detains the father and daughter for he has just heard that the emperor intends to bestow on the english professor the order of the crown for his distinguished services to the progress of modern thought the two move on and are caught up in other small circles where they hear agreeable commonplaces in an atmosphere where everything is taken for granted and in which smooth phrases and smooth faces abound faces which have inherited for hundreds of years the art of expressing nothing in a polite way it is all suave and artificial and decorous no epigrams make themselves conspicuous in the well-bred chatter and one great lady, exhibiting a superfluity of bare flesh, raises a tortoiseshell lorgnette when someone, who can it be, is heard to laugh outright. A famous guardsman has several charming things to say, and the girl finds her chatter received with flattering attention by the handsome man with the garter, who is at once a viceroy and the most suave of diplomats. Surely, when one looks back, the girl's eyes are bright again that night her blonde hair is full of electricity she has regained though with a curious little composed manner something of the roundness the joyousness of nineteen life is a compromise and must not be taken too seriously it is absurd to be much in earnest and it bores people so much the girl has learned For the next two or three days, the two hardly left the study, except for a short walk after dinner, for the professor's book absorbed him. Not feeling himself, he was anxious, terribly anxious, to get it done. After this they would go abroad, and get a long holiday. He wanted to go to Zermatt. At the Riffel-Alp he would get the air and exercise he craved. No, he was not quite himself. He felt overstrained, nervous, He had a continual headache. It was, perhaps, he said, a touch of bile. But one evening, just before dinner, the book was actually done. Bending over the girl at the desk, he kissed her crisp hair, and wrote at the bottom of the page, in his own cramped hand, these words, THE END. And so it was, indeed. The next morning, when the servant went up to call him, the professor had been dead some hours. The doctors spoke of a clot of blood in the brain, of overwork and overstrain, and in the tall, darkened house in Harley Street, the child who had played, the girl who had danced, died too. End of chapter three. Read by Lisa Reichert.